Thanks for downloading Development Drums. My name is Owen Barder and my guest today is Duncan Green. Duncan is the Senior Strategic Advisor at Oxfam, is that right? That's and correct. a well-known blogger and most importantly for today's purposes, he's also the author of From Poverty to Power, a book uh, which is now out in its second edition. Duncan, welcome to Development Drums. Thanks for having me. So before we turn to your book, Duncan, let's explore a bit your history. Uh, you're a physicist, uh, and um, tell, tell us how you made the journey from that to Oxfam. Well, I studied physics, which I'm not sure is entirely the same thing, but uh, I did my undergrad at, uh, in physics at Oxford. And after that, um, I graduated in 1979, a long time ago, just as Britain went into the Thatcher period, and I felt kind of as though I didn't, the country didn't really um, fit, or I didn't really fit in the country. So I then went off to Latin America and backpacked around, got radicalised by sundry Jesuits and experiences of living in Argentina under military rule. And then when I came back, I got very involved in Central American human rights and solidarity work and became a Latin Americanist, um, writing as a journalist and so on. So you were like 15 years in journalism or something? Right? Something like that, yeah. So actually, I, very, I was only freelancing. I wasn't a real journalist. My wife was a real journalist. She was BBC Stringer in El Salvador um, during the war. But I, I actually started work quite quickly in a think tank on Latin America, which was producing books on current affairs in Latin America called Latin America Bureau. And that's where I really sort of started writing properly and got really involved in some of these issues. And after that, you were at CAFOD, is that right? Yes, I joined CAFOD the day after Tony Blair was elected and was sent home with a very bad hangover. Was that a coincidence? Uh, Entirely, yes. Uh, Causal connection doesn't work in either direction. Um, And that was 1997. Worked very much on economic issues, on globalisation, trade, uh, and then went off to DFID to work on the same thing, went to Oxfam, still working as head of research, but still working on very much economic issues. And the great thing about the book was that it enabled me to broaden out a lot more and actually grasp the whole kind of waterfront of what NGOs work on. So let's turn to your book, uh, first published in 2008. I remember reading it uh, when I was living in Ethiopia. And it struck me then, and it struck me re-reading, re-reading the new edition, um, that it's it's an interesting combination. It's a compendium of everything you need to know about development. I mean, you have uh, at least a page or two on almost every current development issue, uh, and and summarise the evidence and and what people think about it. Uh, but you also seem to want to have a bit of a narrative, a bit of a a story that you're pushing. What what who's what are you aiming at here? Who's the audience? Is this an is this an undergraduate textbook or is it a polemic about what we're supposed to think about development i don't think it's a polemic but it is a narrative i think you're right so so writing the book was a juggling act i wanted to get across the 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 depth and richness of development but if you just have a whole load of disparate chapters on different issues uh, and do the encyclopedia then you're missing something because actually ngos oxfam most people working in development actually have an overarching narrative which is what gets them up in the morning the interesting thing about the book was that the narrative emerged. I didn't start with the narrative, which is quite unusual for NGO research, where you actually don't know the answer when you start. Normally, you work backwards from the answer. And in this case, the narrative of this this kind of citizen-state interaction was something that actually emerged from reading, writing, and thinking about it. So what is the narrative, in, in a nutshell? Well, in a nutshell, the narrative is saying a couple of things. One is it's saying that the, the core driver of development is national, and it's, it lies in the interaction between active citizens and effective states. Um, the implication of that is that uh, the international system is of second order importance. So although we make a big fuss and song and dance about it, actually the, the primary drama is national, and, and we and all the other aid and development actors are bit players on this massive stage. Um, And that in order to understand how that interaction takes place, we have to learn to see power. We have to make power visible, have to look at how power is negotiated, redistributed, contested. And that's, I think that whole focus on power and change is the least unoriginal bit of the book. So we'll come to this story of active citizens and effective states uh, later on. But before we do that, I just want to 
explore with you what seems to me a missing part of this or what would seem to I'm sure to many other people to be a missing part of this which is the role of the private sector and of economic growth. Um, It seems strange to think that development happens when citizens and the state interact properly together when what we know is that it's it's jobs and incomes uh, that really drive improvements in people's standard of living. So what's the role of the private sector in your story? Where does it fit? Well, that's a, a big set of questions in there. Um, I've, and it's been one of the big debates within Oxfam with people about the book. Um, the initial position of the book was if you have an effective state, one of the things an effective state like South Korea or Taiwan does is create, create the enabling environment in which the private sector flourishes and therefore you will get you will get growth, but that actually the state is very, very crucial. So it was, if you think 2008, we were still in a kind of post East Asian miracle kind of discussion where industrial policy was actually contested. People were saying, you don't need state intervention, you just need to free, unleash the market. Um, So it was arguing backwards again, uh, back against that. Um, But what I think where I made a mistake in the first edition, certainly, was in conflating too many things. The private sector is not the same as large companies. Large companies is not the same as economic power. And I think if I... Yeah, how I see things now is more that the politics and power part needs to take in concentrations of economic power, and those concentrations are one of the blocks to progress often. But that actually I still maintain that if you have a good, effective state, which actually creates the the enabling environment, there's nothing quintessential about the Korean private sector which can't be created elsewhere. And I've been very influenced by Harjun Chang from Cambridge on this, who absolutely rejects cultural explanations of private sector dynamism, for example, and really does say anyone can do this. So the the rejection of, um, uh, of cultural uh, differences is saying, in effect, that, that the difference isn't because uh, some people are entrepreneurial and some people aren't, but because something about the conditions in which they're trying to set up their businesses are different. And so you're looking not to the question of uh, what can we do to invest in the private sector, but what is it about the situation they're in that, that means that they're unable to set up businesses already? Yeah, absolutely. And, and on growth, um, I think the book very clearly argues that growth is essential, that you know, I'm not anti-growth at all. I'm very worried about the environmental consequences of the current form of growth. And I think the pursuit of Good growth is very important. And so I don't think the book's, the book's definitely not a rejecting growth as an absolutely essential part of poverty reduction and wider development. Do you think that um, the broader NGO community uh, uh, sometimes sounds as if it's anti-growth? I mean, it, sometimes you do get this feeling that, that people are latching on to the idea, for example, that uh, happiness uh, is not correlated with growth. And you, me- you mentioned the studies there and... Um, uh, in our last podcast with the, Diane Coyle, we talked a bit about whether that statistical evidence is valid or not. But do you think there is a, something of a movement among the NGO community to be uncomfortable with the idea that economic growth is an important driver of improvements in people's lives? I, I'm not that, that sceptical about NGOs. I think the, 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 there are different currents of opinion. There's a current of opinion that uh, growth is environmentally unsustainable. Now, that either leads you to a we need different growth or it does lead you to a we reject growth. But very few people in my experience, certainly in Oxfam, reject growth. Absolutely. They do. And I think with very good reason, worry that we're unable to reduce the carbon intensity of growth at a faster rate than growth goes up. So uh, I think there's a real issue there. I think there is a rejection of, let's say, the the uh, the celebration of the private sector as this uh, incredibly dynamic force which will solve all our problems. There's also perhaps a rejection of technology in the same way. Now, sometimes I think that's well-founded because those kind of celebrations tend to ignore issues of power and control. Sometimes it just becomes a bit Luddite. Uh, it, there, are, there are massive variations. Let's Let's turn then to what we mean by effective state. So you've You've said that part of it is is whether we whether they create the enabling conditions for the private sector to grow, um, but uh, I'm trying to understand more generally what you mean by an effective state in a way that doesn't turn into a tautology. If by an effective an effective state you mean a state that creates the circumstances for economic development, then of course that's essential for economic development. So what 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 is it about? 
um, say, the UK or South Korea or Singapore, that means they have effective states that isn't the case with, say, Ethiopia or Nepal? In what sense is an effective state important for development? What, what do you mean by that? I think the the backdrop to this is my discovery of East Asia as a Latin Americanist. So I'd worked on Latin America for 15 years, and I then read a book called Manufacturing Miracles, which compared Latin American industrialization with East Asia's uh, industrialization. And it blew me away, this, this kind of sense of dynamism and possibility and, uh, and success, which I was just not, was not the message that at that time that Latin America was giving anyone. Um, and so, I be, so basically, effective states are developmental states in that sense that Chalmers Johnson uh, described Japan, which is that you need a state that is both very, very aware of, of growth and markets and the private sector, but has autonomy. He called it embedded autonomy. So you need that, which involves an industrial, uh, industrial policy. It involves an effective techn- technocracy. Um, you also need a state that invests in people, health, education, invests in infrastructure, communications. So, yes, there's an element of tautology in there, but actually there are specific political characteristics of developmental states. And the really interesting discussion at the moment is the one in South Africa and elsewhere about what constitutes a democratic developmental state and whether that's actually an oxymoron or whether it's achievable and when and so on. You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bader, from the Centre for Global Development in Europe. My guest today is Duncan Green, the author of From Poverty to Power, which is now out in its second edition. If you enjoy Development Drums, you might also like the Centre for Global Development's Global Prosperity Wonkcast, which gives a shorter, snappier overview of the work of the Centre. You can find it on the Centre for Global Development website, or like Development Drums, you can get it free on iTunes. So I associate you, Duncan, in your book and in your writing with the the idea that uh, what's important here is power and power relations. And you, you, you mentioned that at the beginning, is that that's part of the narrative of your book. Um, and in some ways it... it I've just been reading, as I'm sure you have, uh, Asimoglu and Robinson's book, Why Nations Fail, the, the, you know, the, the other book of, of the year uh, for development Easters to be reading, which is all about this idea that, um, that it's politics and power that drive nations um, towards development or not and, and drives what, the success of the economy and so on. So I, when, I read, when I read Asimoglu and Robinson, I, I had this feeling of helplessness that all these things are predetermined they're internal processes that either happen or they don't happen whereas your books feels to me much more intended to be a handbook a a, you know this a book about agency a a book about how we change things and I want to get a sense of of, um, whether you think the politics of uh, how nations evolve are just driven by the internal equilibria and the trade-offs that that inevitably happen, or if there are things that uh, that people within those countries can do to change them, that 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 power is something that you take, or is it something that you experience? I think this is a really agonising question because I think in the development sector you have a lot of voluntarists, people who think that willpower is enough. I have this plan for the world; it will make the world a better place. Why don't you implement? All it? you have to do is dream. That's yeah. what Hollywood's told us, right? Absolutely. Um, and at the other end, you have these very sort of lofty political scientists who say, oh, you poor misguided thing, just stand back and watch the sweep of history with me and we won't attempt to influence it because it's far too complex and unpredictable. And, and you need both. The, the really difficult thing is that you need both of those in your head at the same time. If you just think, you know, uh, speaking truth to power will do it, then you're going to end up on a gallows. Um, if you think that it's all too difficult, you might as well go and get a different job. And so the really, the, I think the, the really interesting challenge for me within Oxfam and, and, and in, in what I write is trying to get people to work out what margin of influence they can have with a much more sophisticated and realistic understanding of how power works and how change works. And that's become a very big part of Oxfam's internal discussions. We have you know, a lot of case study work and, and research on, 
on pathways to change and and what role citizens organizations civil society organizations and outsiders can have in that it can have we've got lots of examples where it can but don't think that having the right idea is enough you have to understand how power actually works so what would you say is the main difference between you and Asimoglu and Robinson's story of of politics and power and development well, I actually reviewed it yesterday, so that's quite uh, quite a coincidence. And and what I really liked about that book was their understanding of path, critical pathways, of, of critical junctures, of how a system develops in a very every every country, every locality develops along this particular pathway, and uh, there will be moments of opportunity, critical junctures they call them, when it could go one way or another, and those become like dividing lines between why one country goes in one direction, one country goes in another. That kind of the dynamics of change, I think, is really good. What I didn't like, actually, was that they th- their prescriptive part was um, all successful countries had to end up looking remarkably like the American dream, and poor old China is deeply deluded and is going to collapse at any minute, which just seems... You know, wish fulfillment of the of the highest order of yeah. Diffid for many years has been saying good governance is essential to growth. Yeah, you must stamp down on corruption. These things are essential to to, to effective development. And you just say China, you know, and 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 usually they have no answer because the development sector is great at believing its own rhetoric. Well, so and this does segue nicely into the discussion about active citizens. But so let's let's try and get this thought on the table and you you do actually address it in the book this idea that the most effective states in terms of generating economic growth and development um, do look more like China than they do like some of the Latin American countries where you cut your teeth as a journalist you know we have we have the relative success of uh, of places like uh, China under the communist party Korea under the generals Singapore under you know what was not a uh, you know which was a, f- a fairly directive government so effective states um, at least at the outset don't look like very democratic shared power places um, uh, and that in some sense seems to contradict Asimov and Robinson right I mean they seem to be saying that you know concentrations of power are bad for growth and development um, and yet some of the best examples we have of fast growth um, uh, have, in, have involved a degree of, uh, of um, unaccountable exercise of power. And we're seeing that to some extent today in uh, Ethiopia and Rwanda in Africa, both fast-growing countries, both of whose leaders justified their behavior on the grounds that that's what it took to be a developmental state uh, and that the the active citizen part the accountability part would come later um and and then we have the 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 opposite we have these very these states in latin america with uh, very active citizens and ngo movements and so on and not as much economic success to show for it um and i suppose vietnam is perhaps the case that con- contrasts with China where you where you have quite impressive economic growth that's m- that's actually that's still not active citizens although it's more it's more equal and more spread so what's your take is there a trade-off between your view of the need for active citizens and effective states or are these complements or how do how, what's the relationship between these ideas it's complex and very interesting. I think yeah, that, it's that space between citizens and states, which is where I want to spend my time now and where I think a lot of the most interesting work takes place. Um, I'd say uh, start by looking at the question of fragility. So Danny Roderick did some really interesting work comparing democracies and autocracies and, and their growth paths, showing that um, autocracies are great at enormous bursts of growth they come in they can do anything they want they reform everything they inject money and economies take off but then when things start to go wrong when you need second generation reforms no one tell no one wants to tell the general nothing happens they collapse so you get this very spiky form of growth under autocracies democracies when you try and reform everybody says no it's very hard so you don't get the peaks but as soon as something goes wrong everybody tells you and you definitely don't get the same size of trough although that may feel a little odd at the moment but that's the sort of historical record so you get a smoother pattern of growth uh, without the big peaks but without the big uh, 
drops. Now, that's much better in terms of equality and social cohesion and so on. So that's one piece of that argument. But actually, I do suspect that there are trade-offs that in that early stage of development, when you need to invest massively in infrastructure, when you need to um, you know, uh, transform land tenure systems, all the rest of it, it does seem to lend itself to the, he- the, the heavy hand. Um, and it may well be that there is a trade-off that, um, that if you have a wider range of citizens' voices and a greater distribution of power early on, then you have to accept lower levels of growth. Then that brings us back to what do we understand as development. Is div- is, if development is primarily about growth, then China's great, South Korea's great, that's the model. Or if is development about freedoms to be and to do, in which case it doesn't look quite so much like a trade-off anymore. Actually, the trade-off is going for high growth with no voice. The other point on this trade-off is, are the trade-offs changing over time? Again, this threshold question, that it seems to me that autocracies are getting harder and harder to maintain, partly because of spread of global norms. You know, there, are very, there, there are kind of more subtle processes going on under the radar which actually affect what is and isn't a viable development strategy. And I think those kind of things do matter now. So now you're sounding a bit like Esma Glenn Robinson. You're basically saying that the Indian story, which is underpinned by um, changing power relationships, is a, is a, a more desirable and sustainable uh, form of growth than China, which they effectively call a cul-de-sac. I mean, they basically say that it's, China's growing fast, but it's all going to come crashing down because they're not dealing with the politics. Well, they say China won't... won't be able to cope with the transition to a different kind of political system. I don't know how they've decided that. Um, I think India's, I'd say it's certainly uh, dynamic. I'm not, we'll see how sustainable it is. I, I, don't, I don't have a view on the who's going to be the big winner this century. Is it China or India? And India is still much poorer than China, even if it's growing as fast. Yeah, absolutely. But some people say it, because it has this kind of, chaos then therefore it will always be able to find a new source of growth because there's so much churning going on you know your your work on complexity and adaptive systems china's rigid and fragile uh, and therefore it's more likely to crash well we'll see so let's let's turn then to the role of active citizens uh, in in the development story which is the other prong you know you have effective states and and active citizens and in the active citizens part you, you, the book is full of really interesting case studies of where particular groups have um, fought for rights to information or rights to land or, you know, very in, indigenous groups have, have reclaimed uh, power in various ways, um, all of which is quite uh, exhilarating and moving. But I, I struggled to connect it at times to the development story, to, to whether these different community actions added up to... Um, uh, large-scale change um, and so I'd, I'd like to get a bit more from you of what you th- of, of this this space that you talk about between the relationship between active citizens and effective states are you saying that active citizens are what you need to have effective states that, that in the absence of a- active citizens states will tend to become um, uh, corrupt or um, ineffective in in creating the conditions for growth or are you uh, are you saying that active citizenry is something that complements the, the economic growth process that's going on as a consequence of effective states? What's the what what is the role of active citizens in the development process? I think active citizenship is both inherently worthwhile um, in the sense of giving uh, getting people involved in communities, giving people a sense of belonging to things bigger than themselves. Um, but also it's very important to keep in, in terms of keeping states honest, uh, preventing excesses of uh, abuse of power and, and the whole sort of watchdog role. Um, I think there's also a kind of dumb approach to active citizenship and a smart approach to active citizenship. So I think the dumb approach is the more protest marches we have, the better we're doing. And there is an element of that, and certainly in the Latin America tradition. Um, the smart bit is... What in Spanish they say, moving from protesta to propuesta. How do you move from protest to proposal? What are you actually saying to people in power? What what kind of arrangements, what kind of uh, negotiations, what kind of alliances and coalitions are you building with people in decision-making positions? And that, I think, is the interesting bit. That's where active citizenship really starts to have an influence. So I'm, I'm not in a kind of polarisation place. That's absolutely, that, that doesn't work. So give us an example of, what, of, of something... Uh, that you mean by active citizenship that 
that you think is an important part of the development story? So one of the case studies in, in, in the book is from Bolivia, uh, and it's an in, indigenous group, uh, one of the lesser-known indigenous groups, which went through this extraordinary 20-year process of organisation. started off in a semi-feudal situation. The, they couldn't even leave the farm without permission from the landowner. They started to organise, um, and the thing they did, which is different from many Bolivian social movements, is that whenever there was an attack or an episode of repression, they would move into formal politics more. They wouldn't just reject formal politics. They started putting up their own candidates at a time when it was actually very dangerous to stand indigenous candidates. They would, they would be attacked. Um, and they became part of an indigenous movement which actually transformed Bolivia, they uh, got to, uh, in 2006, Bolivia's first ever indigenous president was elected, and these were part of their, that movement. And they then got a million hectares of land in a land reform. And lots of other indigenous groups in, in Bolivia not only received land or benefits, but also a sense of identity which they hadn't really enjoyed before. They actually felt like the country belonged to them. Now, that's an extraordinary transformation, driven primarily from below. Um, AIDS activists in, in South Africa, uh, you know, people in Tahrir Square, you've seen a whole load of situations where active citizenship can get things moving. But unless you have that state as interlocutor, unless you have the state working together, you have potentially a big protest which leads nowhere, as we may be seeing in Egypt now. So what was it about the state in Bolivia that made them ready to listen to that? You know, Why did that indigenous group in Bolivia succeed in a way that say, Tibetans in China won't succeed? Numbers. Um, Bolivia's majority indigenous. Um, I think norms are important. Actually, things like the 500th anniversary of Columbus's conquest, or whatever you want to call it, actually played a big part. This group in particular, when I talked to them, said, we didn't even used to see ourselves as indigenous. We used to see ourselves as campesinos, as peasants. And actually, it was, it was a cultural earthquake which made us realize that we were indigenous and actually I, I remember speaking to one activist who said the thing that changed my life was ILO convention 169 really he read ILO convention 169 and he said and the indigenous part of me woke up that convention is on indigenous rights so even the most unlikely sources of, of awareness can can trigger these big changes and I suppose that comes back to how we understand power which is what the book argues is that power is much more than just who's got the guns this, this point about power within, that when people actually start to uh, feel a sense of uh, entitlement, a sense of rights, a sense of identity, that's often the trigger to much bigger change processes. Remind me, there were four... Uh, notions of power that are well there's there's umpteen different ways of thinking about power but this particular one i find useful which is that in many social change processes it starts with a sense of power within that people get this the light bulb moment when a woman says he shouldn't he has no right to beat me for example um then you go to a a power with people find other people in the same situation start to form collective organizations of one kind or another in the case of the chiquitanos these indians they actually started off playing football together that was how it emerged out of a soccer game. Um, then you have power to make demands, and finally you get power over people in authority, decision makers. So it's power within, power with, power to, and power over. And Robert Chambers has just added a fifth one, which is power to empower, if people really want to. Uh, get, get, and what yeah. does power to empower mean? Power to empower is, is Robert's classic thing about handing over the stick, enabling people who are in positions of power, like, like, like us, yeah, people in the development sector, a big part of what we should be doing is handing over that power to people on the ground, and that changes the way we work, the way we talk to people, the way we behave in meetings, all the rest of it. It's very nice. Uh, uh, he put it on my blog this week. So I am going to come to this question of what we in the development sector should be doing based on your analysis of uh, effective states and active citizens. But I want to uh, just uh, keep going one a little bit more on this on this relationship between active citizens and effective states, because um, your your acknowledgement earlier that there's at least a case for um, a heavy hand um, sits uncomfortably, doesn't it, with our our desire to see uh, groups uh, take power um, and express express that power within as they find it and and change their own lives. And and we see this example at the moment with... um, uh, the Oxfam campaign on land grabs, for example. I'm sure there are um, 
people in uh, in some developing countries who say that you know, reorganizing the land use is an absolutely essential part of the development process and that we have to move people um, from uh, land which they're not using efficiently at the moment um, and that this is um, this is a natural part of the development process and then um, at the same time we sit there thinking well actually these are real people's lives and they ought to be empowered to um, to take control of their lives and to resist this and this is you know this is too heavy-handed um, uh, and and you know, if if we care about people's lives, we ought to support them in resisting that. So, how do you? Where do you come out on you know, the extent to which uh, active citizens actually can become an obstacle to uh, the development process? Um, and where do you? And and when and how are they? Um, an accelerant and a part of a catalyst to the development process? So, in general, I think I, I think Schumpeter got it absolutely right that development in general, especially economic development, is a process of creative destruction. Um, and people in the development sector are generally much happier with the creative bit than the destruction bit. So we want, we want somehow to sanitise the development process. We want everything to be nice uh, and we don't want anyone to get hurt. Um, now there is a danger if you actually were if if we were ever in a position to decide things which we 're generally not that that would actually have a cost in terms of you know firms wouldn 't go out of business sectors wouldn 't get uh, rearranged land wouldn 't be redistributed all the rest of it however, I think that 's very different from saying there should be a free for all and that you know the more destruction the merrier they 're clearly what you 've got to have is a set of rules set of minimum standards. And that's what we're asking for in the land campaign. Oxfam is not saying there should not be large-scale land acquisitions. What Oxfam is saying is when those land acquisitions should take place, there should be free prior informed consent of the people who already are on the land, that the contracts should be uh, made public so we can see what on earth's going on. Uh, and, and the whole thing has got to be you know, played by certain minimum standards. Okay, so, um, but here the role of active citizenship seems to me to... Um, really change the distribution of the benefits of development, perhaps at some cost to its speed of progress. I mean, that's the trade-off. And what we're saying is that if we have more empowered uh, citizens in a situation like that, they um, uh, will be able to uh, capture a bigger share of, of, of the benefits. Um, but it means that it will be a longer a more expensive, more time-consuming process for that development to happen. So it'll be, it'll be fairer, better, but slightly slower development. Is that, is that how your active citizens fit into the development story in a nutshell, or do you see it differently from that? Yes. So I think that's a very good summary. If if you have uh, active citizens who are entirely in control, you might well end up with a sort of Latin American populist thing where the entire budget is spent on salaries and there's no money for investment and the economy gets very sluggish. Um, that, that's, that's what happens when you active, have active citizens without an effective state. It's when you have the two in the right interaction that you actually get the best of both. You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Barder, from the Centre for Global Development. And my guest today is Duncan Green, the author of From Poverty to Power. I hope you'll consider joining our Facebook group where you can find out about future interviews and you can also put questions that you want answered. Um, let's, let's explore the situation where the uh, state is essentially not interested in development. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of analysis of, of why some countries are poor comes down to the idea that the, that the incentives for the people running this running the country are not to bring about economic development that they are actually that the, the state the people running the state are better off if they continue to control such economic activity as there is perhaps um, mining of natural resources and so on. And that they don't have an interest in in bringing about improvements in in the lives of everybody in the country. 
Now, in those circumstances, making the state more effective uh, feels like it's it's uh, we're strengthening something whose incent- incentives are fundamentally broken. Um, so presumably, when you say effective state, you mean an effective state with the right motives. But how, what do you do in a situation, or what's the? Uh, can, can you not can you not have states that are locked in an equilibrium where there is just no nobody in the in the state apparatus who wants to see change? Yes, you can, and I think this this is yeah the big question in development is as, as the countries with effective states, whether they're poor or middle income, get uh, grow, um, the development sector will increasingly be focused on states with adjectives, you know, fragile, failed, failing. Um, and there you have a whole different set of issues. Now, uh, you wouldn't want to, you know, Matthew Lockwood talks about vampire states, the, the you know, states which actually suck the blood of the country, then there's no point in strengthening that state. But then no state is monolithic. So, the challenge for the development sector is to find which parts of the state are most likely to, to become more uh, effective and less vampiric uh, over time, to work with other centres of power. So even in failed or failing states, there is lots of power distributed in religious organisations, in community organisations, traditional uh, traditional uh, structures. So it's actually getting becoming more intelligent about how we understand power and how that interacts with the creation of effective bits of state. And that seems to be where a lot of the, the, the fragile states discussion is going at the moment. I think that's quite healthy. It's very difficult. I mean, it, you know, if development was easy, we'd have done it by now. And that's especially true of fragile states, I think. Is there really a story that says that, you know, if you don't have an effective developmental state, then you, you work away at bits of it? I mean, it feels like a very... Um, reductionist view of how change happens that you you know you you gradually work away at the um, finance ministry or the defense ministry or you know that you that you gradually put in in place the pieces it it feels to me like what what are the good what are the good examples where we've gradually painstakingly put in place these little centers of excellence within a state and then suddenly it's the jigsaw is being complete and we've had an effective developmental state emerge from it. I'd say there's some really interesting examples from things like tax authorities. Um, yeah, the South African Tax Authority was very important in terms of guiding um, South Africa through could, what could have been a much bloodier transition out of apartheid. I think Botswana, the role of the central bank in Botswana, yeah, but forget China, the most impressive economic performance in the last 40 years of the 20th century was Botswana. Went from $300 per capita to 6000 um, without any fuss. And that was you know, down to some very effective aid, uh, some very effective expats who ended up living in Botswana. Diamonds. Diamonds. Uh, 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 Finding diamonds at the right time, after you agreed all the institutions which were going to manage natural resources, and they then found the diamonds, so therefore that wasn't it didn't lead to a sort of curse of a natural resource curse. Um, but it also was you know effective bits of institution, and they'd have very weak institutions to begin with. There were only twelve graduates in the whole country at independence. Um, so there are some examples like that, but I don't think that's the only strategy. I mean, we're on to sort of what do you do in development? I think. Yeah, you know, some of the other things people talk about is shocks. You know, absolutely crucial that change is almost never linear in any system of, of development, um, and especially in fragile states, you can plug away at something, but until there's a change of leadership, until there's a conflict, until there's a uh, economic meltdown, nothing will change. But then things change very rapidly, and the question is: Are development actors geared up? to move and take advantage and support the forces of light in those moments of opportunity, the critical junctures that, that Asimoglu and Robinson talk about, or are we sticking with our five-year plans and, and completely oblivious to them? Right. So we, we are, as you say, now on the question of the role of outsiders. And you know, I, think, I think once you get into this analysis that says it's about the internal power dynamics in a country, it's then quite difficult to see what the role of outsiders should be. Um, uh, both because um, it's hard uh, for us to to be sufficiently knowledgeable and expert to really understand the effect of outsiders on on internal power dynamics, um, and partly because we we don't have sufficiently large leverage. We you know things like um, providing or withholding aid 
are simply not big enough incentives. There's not a big enough carrot or stick to really change the internal power dynamics within a country. You know, no government is going to give up control over the nation's natural resources in return for a bit of aid going to uh, the poorer citizens of their country, um, especially when a lot of that aid um, will never actually arrive or be used sensibly. So um, what do you think the, you know, if your analysis about active citizens and effective states is right, that seems to suggest that uh, the role for outsiders is rather limited in what we can do. Um, and yet you work for Oxfam, which is all about um, uh, people in uh, originally in the UK and then internationally um, trying to do what they can to stand in solidarity with people in poor countries. So what, how, do you, how do you resolve that tension? What do you think we should be doing? Well, first of all, start with a, yeah, take a very large swig of humility. So I think uh, NGOs, aid agencies, everybody has exaggerated their own importance. Yeah, there's, there's no institutional incentive to minimise your own importance. It right. always works the other way. So I think part of the argument of the book is, wise up, guys, you know, um, we're not as big as we think we are. We are bit players in this. The, you know, the drama is national. Then what do you do? Well, uh, in the case of Oxfam, a lot of what we do, increasing amount of what we do, uh, we, have, we, we do two main things. We, we, we do emergency work, you know, going in after natural disasters when you do need someone to just come in and get wells, get, get water flowing. And that's kind of evolving, but not, not as fast. And then the other part is, increasingly about how do we encourage national change processes working with national organizations we're not going to come in and say do this do that do the other we shouldn't and even if we do no one will listen but we can support uh local organizations uh bring in other new ideas get organizations talking to people they don't normally talk to the big you know the latest development jargon is convening and brokering that oxfam can get people in a room who wouldn't normally talk to each other and see what comes out of it so it's that kind of a more subtle role rather and i think in a way that's easier for essentially a small organization like oxfam when you've got the kind of resources of the world bank or diffid a you're quite um, clumsy because you have to spend a million dollars as soon as you get out of bed um, but also it's actually quite hard to do that sort of deft stuff which you which which actually involves a deep understanding of the local situation working you know primarily national staff uh, and and fitting into the processes that exist you have a very interesting observation in the book that um, official aid agencies like diffid and the world bank tend to work on the effective states part of the agenda and that NGOs tend to work on the active citizens part of the agenda. Um, I wasn't clear whether you were saying that that was fine, that that's the right division of labour, these are the right partnerships. You know, your example just now of convening and brokering, that feels like it's an active citizens thing that, as you say, NGOs are perhaps better placed to do than, um, uh, than official government aid agencies. So... Uh, have we, one way or another, come to broadly the right place uh, in terms of how we think about what we can do about active citizens and effective states? Not quite. I mean, obviously, I work for an NGO, so I'm never satisfied, right? So, so I think I definitely don't think Diffid should be in the business of funding large, you know, large amounts of money to civil society organisations. It's the quickest way to destroy them. Um, I should say, Claire Short once said to me that uh, she often wondered what would have happened in the UK if the suffragettes had been financed by the CIA. A dreadful with, thought. Right. <laughs> would, that, would, that have, would that have accelerated women getting the vote here or not, right? I mean, you know, it does yeah. seem like some of these processes are best not foreign funded. On the other hand, I think it was a very interesting suggestion, I don't know if Diffid implemented it, that 5% of any uh, funding to central government should go to watchdog organisations that we're keeping them honest, whether they're parliamentary or citizen. I think now, that remains Diffid's policy for budget support. Okay, well, that's great, because that's the kind of thing where it's an intelligent attempt to counterbalance the citizen and state interaction. Um, NGOs, yes, we, we, yeah, we work with civil society, but as I say, increasingly we think it's helping civil society talk to others, whether it's private sector companies. We do lots of work, work yeah, getting producer organisations organised and helping them talk to... Uh, companies who are buying their products so they get a better deal in a value chain than just by selling locally, that kind of thing. So it's, this, it's a more sophisticated understanding of networks and, and, and uh, coalitions. That from, and I think Divi could do more of that as well. So donors, donors can 
yeah, they shouldn't sort of throw money at things if that's going to destroy it, but they could put more pressure on, on this kind of convenient brokering role. But there is one other thing, actually, which outsiders should do above all else, really, which is uh, I remember back in 2005 during the Make Poverty History kind of campaign, there was a brilliant paper by Nancy Birdsall and others saying, hold on a minute, the first thing we should be doing is putting our own house in order. What are we doing on climate change? What are we doing on intellectual property? What are we doing on migration? You know, and that is absolutely, yeah, the one of the biggest roles for outsiders is not doing harm. It's not don't it's not a do no harm, but stop doing harm. Right, identify the harm you're doing and and stop it. Let's let's come to that because that, as you know, is uh, is what gets me out of bed in the morning and it's what Centre for Global Development exists to do. But I just want to, before we move to that, just focus a bit harder on on uh, what we're doing, um, what we're trying to do to affect national processes, as you call them. And there is a criticism of aid that uh, aid to um, states uh, makes them less responsive, less accountable, uh, less likely to change, that we're, you know, the the kind of populist version of that is that we're propping up unaccountable uh, dictators. The more sophisticated version of it is that um, uh, by the amount of aid we give and the way we give it, that we prevent the emergence of a social contract between a state and its citizens. And from your analysis about how change happens, that seems like a, a worrying phenomenon, if that if that's true, if it's if it's true, you know, do you sometimes worry that uh, the amount of aid we give to some of the most aid dependent countries and the way we give aid uh, does actually stifle some of the processes of 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 political change and 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 transmission of power in particular that you write about in your book as being part of what development what makes development happen. I think that's a genuine worry. I think, you know, Paul Collier once said, is aid like oil? You know, is aid just money coming out of the ground? And if so, then it'll have a similar, yeah, there'll be a resource curse effect uh, with aid uh, as with other things. I'd, I'd say... And I, should, I should say Paul Collier's paper, Is Aid Oil, found that the answer to that question was no. Exactly. Um, but, but the question is, I think, still a valid one in terms of the political impact of aid. And his, his conclusion was that um, all the other things that come with AIDS kind of uh, correct the potential damage. And I think that's actually quite a good way to think about it, that you need to... I, yeah, my, the crude way of putting it is I think you start with a political deficit if you're giving large chunks of aid to a government and, thereby the, and therefore the government doesn't have to tax local people and companies and therefore doesn't have to have that social contract to the same extent. But you can give aid in such a way that you overcome that, that initial deficit. You do it through watchdogs, you do it through um, uh, you know, funding tax reform. You know, you can use aid to build the social contract if you do it cleverly. The problem is always if the volumes are very large and the number of staff are very small. And I'm very worried about the, the when you increase an aid agency's budget and you and you simultaneously say and you have fewer staff do more with less then that actually makes it more and more crude in terms of how it can use money to achieve change i'm not mentioning any names there I so evidently diffid have been <laughs> lobbying you to to campaign for larger staff that's a, a separate topic but actually they have um increased the, their staff numbers quite rapidly the other thing the, would, sh- the other thing i would say on uh, uh, on aid is that one of the interesting you know, developments in recent years is just how fast aid dependence is falling. And that's really healthy. So what you want is to keep up volumes of aid where it's needed, but overall for aid dependence to fall so that the social contract emerges un- untrammeled. And so aid dependence in this case is is falling because domestic revenues are rising mm. quite fast. And domestic growth. Yeah. And domestic because of domestic growth mm. and because of better domestic revenue collection. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, then there's the related question of uh, the extent to which it makes sense for outsiders to be supporting civil society movements. I remember in Ethiopia, uh, several of my Ethiopian friends would refer to what they called astroturf organisations, which were uh, these fake grassroots. Um, and you certainly did see, you know, the dilemma in Ethiopia was that it's a very poor country. It'd be very hard for a, an NGO to raise money domestically. Uh, because the people they were seeking to represent were by definition very poor Um, uh, and they received a lot of money um, instead from outsiders um, uh, from overseas and you could detect a shift in their um, in their alignment in many of them many of them 
felt very accountable to and responsive to the agendas of external funders. And the Ethiopian government um, uh, has introduced some pretty draconian laws um, about foreign funding of advocacy NGOs, which um, have got right up the nose of many donors and international NGOs. But I have to say a lot of Ethiopians that I've spoken to, uh, I wouldn't say all, but many of them have quite a lot of sympathy for uh, the idea that foreign funding of NGOs and advocacy organisations is undesirable and that they would rather have their own organisations that are much more accountable internally. So, I mean, as an, as an international NGO, Oxfam must have this problem all the time. You have domestic partners. How do you avoid the astroturf problem? I mean, if you had... It- if you had pure indigenous Ethiopian NGOs accountable locally, that would be great, but they would be much smaller. Right. Yeah. So that's the that's the they'd basic. They'd be much less well resourced. They'd a, be much in smaller. A, in, a, in an ideal world, for so many reasons, NGOs wouldn't be necessary, and this this is just one of the many. Um, but at the moment, there is a, uh, a, a yeah, massive shortage of resources for civil society organisations, and uh, and we can help now. There is a danger to this. A friend of mine called it the carpe per diem culture. That um, you know, that that actually you create. Uh, it's almost again. It's like you you inflate uh, wages. You inflate. Um, you draw staff from governments, and you you create some of the problems you're trying to solve. And I think that's that. And you're constantly battling against that. Uh, and it is one of the one of the. And, and you today. see international NGOs uh, working in developing countries that hire away not only. Um, key government staff to come and be their advocacy officer or their policy officer in the aid agency or, or the NGO, but also hiring away uh, people like doctors, trained doctors, or, um, to come and work as, as uh, drivers for you know, because their wages are so high. Oh, that's great. But that's actually what migration does pretty effectively as well. Right. I must say, a number of, number of lawyers and doctors I've had cabbing me around South London. Um, but... <clears throat> So what do you do in that situation? Well, it, it works both ways as well. A you know, number of ex-Oxfam staff are now back in government, in, in, in politics and all the rest of it. So, so there is a, it's a brain circulation, not just a brain drain. But there is an issue there. I think that's right. But again, you know, these are like the, this is like the original sin of development. And you have to overcome the original sin by the penance you, 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 you perform. You know? but, uh, that, that, that it's how you fund who you fund, what are, what are your criteria for making sure that the people you're funding are genuine, not briefcase NGOs. This, this is the, the art of development. It's not a science. The art of development is how do you actually make sure that you avoid some of the worst excesses of this? But I think we may be missing the biggest problem here. So, yes, it's a problem if, if NGOs or aid agencies are driving up wages, um, recruiting away the best staff, brain draining and so on. But it's it's surely it's more profound than that, which is, you know, if you're, if what you're about is power about power within uh, of communities recognizing that they have power and and exercising that power then ventriloquizing that through a a globally funded international NGO uh, just isn't part of that process you we're into this problem of trying to construct um, what looks like the arrangements for an effective civil society organization um, uh, by creating its structure from outside and artificially creating it yeah, and then no, wondering wait, why wait. it doesn't work. Now, but, I'm overstating it. Yes, absolutely. I can because, see by your face. But tell me why that isn't what we're doing. Okay, because if you try and ventriloquize, it's a bit. It's, it's like working with states. If you try and graft on something artificial which doesn't work, if you try and insist on something which is best practice rather than best fit, it won't work. So actually, when you look at the indigenous organizations which have taken off with NGO support. It's because they've hit a nerve. That's because they fit with the experience of poor people on the ground. So, you know, one of the best examples I've seen in recent years is our work on domestic violence in South Asia, where we just, uh, a, a group of uh, largely Indian campaigners uh, uh, within Oxfam set up a, a very nice viral system where people would commit to talking to five to ten neighbors and friends and relatives um, about violence against women. We produced a little pack of images for non-literate people about different uh, situations in which women are beaten up in India and South Asia. And it went viral. And we've now got 3.7 million people have signed up to that. Now, if that was artificially imposed, it would be 37, not 3.7 million. You know, 
any of these processes, you can absolutely see when they work is because they fit. So, so again, Self-Employed Women's Association in India was started with small NGO grants, including from Oxfam. That kind of thing goes massive, and they're bigger than we are now, only if... It fits. So I think there's a perfectly good market selection process, if you like, or evolutionary selection process, which will stop the ventriloquizing actually getting anywhere. Let's move finally to this question of um, the do no harm agenda or the do less harm agenda or however you want to describe it. This is the you just you have a chapter in your book about um, uh, trade uh, international institutions, the various things that happen in uh, in the rest of the world that affect poor countries. Uh, you, at the beginning of this conversation, you said, well, most of what matters, most of what's important is national. In other words, it ha- is what's happening within the developing countries. That's really what, what determines development and, and poverty reduction and change. Does that mean that the kinds of things that we talk about, about trade policy and climate change... Uh, migration, intellectual property rights, security, that's essentially all second order and not very interesting or important? Or what's how, how important is that kind of stuff? So I'd say it's second order and it's interesting and important, okay. <laughs> if I'm allowed to. Um, so, yeah, one of the other purposes of the book was to push back against some of what I thought were the misconceptions of exaggerating our own uh, position and so on. So I probably went very strong on remember development is national but that's just my experience from everywhere i've been but um we are not a neutral player you know i am british i want britain to contribute to this um oxfam is an international organization but predominantly based in europe it it has a european uh much of it has a european take on events and so i think that means it's disproportionately relevant to us what the impacts of these powerful rich countries is having. And I think, you know, when I look across the sort of sweep of development, it seems to me that the optimism is largely national and the pessimism is largely global. Um, and the pessimism springs from a number of interacting horrible processes. I think climate change, the big shift uh, from the first edition of the book to the second edition of the book was in the first edition I was talking about the future threat of climate change and by the time of the second edition we were seeing it across our programs chaotic weather systems really really worrying deeply worrying processes going on faster than anyone had predicted so i think climate change uh the financial crisis i think amply showed that there is an inherent destabilizing impact of an excessively large financial sector and unregulated but it's both those things it's too big and it's too unregulated However well regulated it is, when the flow of finance across borders is 100 times bigger than the real economy, a tiny shiver in the finance sector will cause havoc in the real economy. So I think real problems on the finance sector. Then the third one is ideas. You know, the the North still has, I think, a huge impact in terms of ideas of what is right and what is wrong, what is good policy. And a lot of those ideas, I think, are are, are questionable. Really? Say more about that. Oh, well, you know, the, the, before I even got into all the, the stuff around the book, there was this endless debate about trade where, you know, the, 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 the trade lobbyists from Europe had a wonderful ability to conflate trade liberalisation and trade as though they were the same thing, which, you know, if you take one look at the history of South Korea, you know perfectly well it's not. Um, and yet somehow, if you're for trade, then you have to be for trade liberalisation, which was a wonderfully historically... Um, amnesiac position in terms of everything that Hajin Chang's written about. So it's these kind of things where I think we just need to question some of the received wisdoms. You know. So I'm interested in the idea that you're optimistic about what's happening in developing countries themselves, but pessimistic about what's happening at a global level. Um, do you think eventually that the global problems, uh, the lack of investment in various kinds of global public good, failure to make progress on climate change, um, will eventually or are already breaks on the development process for poor countries what's your, how uh, how much attention should people who are interested in development in the UK say or in the US be paying to uh, their own government's policies how much attention should they be paying to 
what we're doing in developing countries themselves um, is what's going to happen that as rich as poor countries become richer and more uh, more wealthy that they will just become more powerful and they'll eventually be able to uh, have their say in the international system themselves in a way that we're seeing with China now and Brazil and South Africa and India and so on um, do we just wait for these countries to get richer and then they can fix that then they'll have sufficient power to fix uh, the international problems that affect them or do we need to be focusing harder on the international problems today I'm wondering whether to try a complicated metaphor but it feels development feels like we're running up a down escalator but the the, the down escalator is accelerating <laughs> so, which is a very exhausting metaphor but I think that's kind of how it feels you know that that You've got this huge progress. The last 60 years, absolutely phenomenal. Half, you know, NGOs don't talk about it nearly enough because we're always concentrating on what still needs to be done. But if you look at education, you look at health, you look at uh, a sense of dignity, rights, amazing 60 years. Every possibility that we can get the job done in some sense. You know, the, the, the latest calculation of the total amount of money needed to end global poverty is $66 billion a year half of the global aid. As Mandela said in 2005, you, yours is the generation. He was just talking to the wrong group of people. He should have been saying that in South Africa. Yours is the generation that can make poverty history. It wasn't a bunch of white activists in, in, in Trafalgar Square, although it was a very nice message. It was the people in South Africa who can do that. And the cloud that's hanging over it is definitely the cloud for me of climate change and sort of malformed globalisation. I'm not against globalisation per se, but some of its uh, excrescences are really worrying, and finance is one. So what is it that um, we should be doing on some of these global issues? Where are the priorities? Um, and in particular, how does that relate? To, one of the things that I don't see a strong link to is your narrative about how power changes in developing countries. Is, it, is this just a question of creating the most propitious context for whatever is or isn't going to happen in developing countries? Or are there things that we do in the global system that actually affect internal power dynamics within poor countries? I mean, uh, the way we relax trade rules um, or the way, we, uh, the way we tackle climate change or the way we finance um, uh, development, uh, investment, and the, the way investment happens, for example... Um, what are the things that? Uh, what's the interaction between your story about the internal power dynamics and these these global policy issues? Well, I've been thinking a lot about that because I've just written a paper on the post twenty fifteen what comes after the MDGs discussion because I was struck by how completely unpolitical that discussion is. No one has really uh, discussed what how international instruments like the Millennium Development Goals affect government decisions no one actually as far as i can work out no one has actually gone to a government and asked in a neutral way what international instruments affect your decision making processes which is bizarre given how much money and time is going into this discussion um so i wrote a paper about that and it got me thinking about yeah how do how does the international gain traction within a country and it seems to me there are some obvious ways um and the MDGs were quite a blunt sort of attempt to influence behaviour. But a lot of the ones which are actually, I think, probably more significant are often not on our radar screen. So I think the constant sort of osmosis of international law actually does change the way societies work. And yet, yeah, if you look at the role of women, uh, women's rights, uh, the, 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 the identity, the very identity of children, yeah, do you have the right to beat children or not? That has shifted in my lifetime hugely across the developing world. So are you enthusiastic about the way that aid donors are now discussing gay rights as part of the development discourse? Yeah, I think it's an important part. I wouldn't say it was a priority, but it, it's certainly an important part of, uh, especially if you work on Latin America, where there is a big tradition of um, non-heterosexual behaviour across large parts of Latin America. That's absolutely a, a perfectly valid question. Um, so I think I've got a sort of wider concept of I like this phrase, the enabling environment. I'm distressed that it always boils down to investment rules because actually the enabling environment is the right way to think about what we are trying to help with. And I think the enabling environment in terms of ideas, in terms of experiences, knowledge... Um, and, Norms and standards as well. Yeah, yeah, and not preventing things from happening um, is a very good sort of umbrella term for what we're trying to do. So I think that's right. Um, you're absolutely right on... on uh, Allied to that, stop doing harm, 
you know, if you put those two together, then I think that's a useful contribution where you're actually you're creating uh, a market for progress. Duncan Green, thanks for coming on Development Drums. Thank you. You've been listening to Development Drums with Owen Barder from the Centre for Global Development, and my guest today has been Duncan Green, the author of From Poverty to Power, available from Amazon, uh, from the Oxfam website, and from all good bookshops. <laughs>